This is a Federal News Network podcast. When the pandemic shut down worldwide travel, some 100,000 Americans were stranded in nations across the globe. It fell to my next guest to pull together a multi-agency task force to get them home. He and the team succeeded, and for his work, he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. He's the Acting Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs. Ian Brownlee joins me in studio. Mr. Brownlee, good to have you in. It's a delight to be here. Well, where do you begin with this thing? How did the news get to you, and what happened on that first day when suddenly it dawned on somebody that we've got these folks all around the world? Well, we've been following the story closely from the time we first learned about it in Wuhan and the Diamond Princess and, and stories like that. And we were advocating for the creation of a task force. And, you know, be careful what you ask for, because one day the undersecretary for management came and asked me to head the thing one day in mid-March of last year. So you must have brought some sort of experience in international logistics and nation knowledge to be able to head this up. I had worked a number of task forces over the years. I had the H1N1 SAR, some of those over the years. So, I, yeah, I had experience heading task forces. But this one was fundamentally different because, of course, COVID. We couldn't do what we did in the past, which was pack lots of people from all the different agencies in one big room and eat lots of pizza working 24 hours a day. We had to do the whole thing remotely. So it was a, a unique experience in many senses. And what agencies were joining you in this effort? Well, we had multiple bureaus from across the State Department, the Bureau of Administration, the regional bureaus, the Economic and Business Bureau, that sort of thing. Diplomatic security was in there. But also we had folks from FAA, CDC, HHS, DOD, various DHS components were in the room figuratively. Sure. And how did you discover where Americans were and in what quantities? Because that seems like something fairly basic, but I imagine that's a hard piece of information to pull together. Well, every post around the world puts together a report within the government is the F-77, and it estimates how many U.S. citizens are in a country who might need to be evacuated in the event of a crisis. Because U.S. citizens aren't required to register with us, it's always a bit of an educated guess as to how many there are. So really what we relied upon here was putting the word out and saying, do you need help? If so, get in touch with the local embassy, the local consulate. It really all started in Morocco when we were given, I think it was 24 hours notice that they were going to close their airspace. It was a prime time for tourism in Morocco, and we realized we needed, I forget now the exact number, is either six or 12 flights to get people out of there before they got trapped there. Wow, so many questions. First of all, how many people did it end up being well, we say over 100,000. Frankly, I think it was well over 100,000. You know, the effort sort of went on for a very long time after it became an all-hands effort. And what does it take, say, in a nation that has shut down its airspace and its airline service? All right, you still got to get them out of Morocco. What happens? Give us an example. Well, I think Peru is a good example. Uh, very early in the crisis, they had infection in their civil aviation organization in the, in the civil side of the airport there in Lima. They shut the whole thing down. We went in, we took in experts, we helped them stand up effectively an air traffic control system. We helped them set up logistic spaces, places where they could do the, the immigration controls, the exit controls, that sort of thing. We took a hangar that belonged to the U.S. government and turned it into the civil side of the airport. We helped the airlines who were coming in get landing permissions all of that. It was a, it really was an across-the-government effort. And you had to negotiate a lot, I guess, with the other governments to get their people out. But on the other hand, they might have had people here that they wanted to get out of the United States. There was some of that. There were, for example, flights were going down to Peru, in, in that exact case, uh, going down empty. 
And if they could pull their people together and we could get them on the flights, we could send them home again that way. We're speaking with Ian Brownlee, Acting Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And what about the Air Force and military assets? They're not in the airline business. In fact, they themselves dragoon the airlines when they have a high lift need for people. So how did that all work? Well, the military helped us in two very big senses. Where they were going out to a place to deliver supplies, deliver troops, whatever it is, and they do that routinely. They're flying in and out of places all around the world. They offered us space on those aircraft returning on the Space A, space available basis. They also assisted us because we were chartering commercial aircraft to go into various places around the world. The State Department has a superb office for doing this, but they were stressed. They were strained. We were going beyond their capacity to do it. So we signed a memorandum of understanding with the Air Force, with the U.S. Transcom, and they helped us. They helped the Bureau of Administration in chartering aircraft. So the DOD helped us in those two ways. So chartered aircraft, then the civil air facilities around the world were available, even though the airlines were not operating. The airlines, their scheduled airlines, took down their services almost uniformly. What we found was that there were small, hungry carriers who were willing to go in on a one-off or, or you know, five-time charter basis to fly in somewhere, but they wouldn't have had the necessary landing permissions, ground crews, etc. So we helped them arrange all of that, making it possible for them to do those round trips. And is there any estimate of what this whole effort cost? I'm sure there is, but I don't know what it was. I just know we were spending a lot of money very, very quickly. Congress was supporting us, asking us, what do you need? We'll take care of you. Yeah, we've got the printing presses. We'll just send the dollars over. And what was it like day to day? I mean, was this a round-the-clock type of seven-day effort for a period? Exactly. It was around the clock, seven days a week for quite a long time. We had folks working 12-hour shifts, seven to seven And so what we would do is we would gather 6.45 a.m., 6.45 p.m. virtually and do a shift change, a sync call to find out what had happened overnight or what was going to likely to happen overnight. And then, you know, everybody came on. On you'd go. Wow. In my mind, always runs toward the stomach. On 12-hour <laughs> shifts, did you have any authority to roll in a few pizzas at government expense, or is that yeah. still a no-no? Not at government expense, but that was the old days. In the old days, we would have gathered everybody around a room. For well, that's right. They weren't they physically weren't, they, together. They weren't that's in right. the room. But in the old days, they'd gather around a big, long table with you know computers and telephones, and it came to smell worse and worse as the task force went on and the old pizza boxes piled up. Now, people walk down to their kitchens and then... Sure, that's right. Yeah, I keep forgetting that. And what about the people coming in from overseas? What condition were they in? Were they generally well-fed, well-taken-care-of, touristy type of situation? It was a huge array of people. We had students. We had backpackers. We had retirees. We literally had people on cruises off Antarctica. So it was a whole variety of different sorts of people coming in under different conditions. I mean, sometimes those military flights would come and they'd land. I remember one landed at a special forces base out in the piney woods of Louisiana. And our people, I think it was the Atlanta Passport Agency, suddenly had to arrange for buses after the plane was in the air, had to run out, arrange for buses and hotel rooms for these people to make sure they had somewhere to go when they got off that big gray airplane. Yeah, they could be more remote in Louisiana than they were in Morocco or Peru. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Strange way. And were there any special considerations for less than friendly nations like China or Russia or do we have anybody in North Korea? 
We did not have any flights out of North Korea that I recall. China, we were pulling people out of there. Of course, the initial Wuhan folks back in mid-January of last year. Russia, I don't believe we ever had any charter flights out of there. I think commercial operations continued out of Russia right throughout. Uh, I know we had conversations with the Cubans about what we could do to get people out of there, the Venezuelans, because the various restrictions on flights between Cuba and, and the United States or Venezuela and the United States. So that requires some detailed negotiations by our Western Hemisphere Affairs Bureau. And when there are things like this that are not political, that are simply humanitarian, even with nations that we are not ordinarily friendly with, at the kind of diplomatic operating level, are things a little bit more ordinary? We can continue conversations with anybody about anything. It's not to say we necessarily will be able to come to agreement, but we can make the point that these are human beings who need to get home. And sometimes it takes more talking than other times. So for you, was this a career highlight in terms of drama and effort? It was a career highlight in the sense of seeing just what a group of experts can do if you turn them loose. It was really gratifying to see the breadth and depth of expertise that exists in the federal workforce and the degree of creativity that exists there. So faced with these unprecedented situations, faced with new demands coming in every day from every corner of the globe, what could people do? And they just pivoted, applied themselves, rose to the occasion, and did a great, great job. Ian Brownlee is Acting Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. No, thank you very much. I'm a delight to be here. I'm part of the team. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style. You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me 
uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream 
which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's in an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service, uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort. Down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor, we call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you gotta go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. We all have a lot on our plates. Work, kids, relationships. And sometimes it can be hard to just catch a breath. 
When life is go, 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 it matters where you stay. Hilton's family of brands is team members dedicated to making you feel truly cared for so you can mentally check out before you even check in. Take the break you deserve and book your next stay on Hilton.com. Hilton for the stay. Celebrate this holiday season by sending money to your loved ones with Western Union. As a new customer, you can enjoy a $0 transfer fee when you send money online. For fast and reliable money transfers, use Western Union. Visit westernunion.com or download our app today to get started and your first transfer fee is on us. Services offered by Western Union Financial Services, Inc., NMLS 9069A3, or Western Union International Services, LLC, NMLS 9069A5, FX Gain Supply.